This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Each week on this program, we bring together two researchers from different fields of study. But this week, both of our guests already work across several fields of study to solve complicated problems. So when I introduce them to one another at the end of the show, there's no telling where this conversation might lead. Joining us today in studio is Elizabeth Varghese, whose recent study in the journal Lab on a Chip describes a new device for stressing in vitro cells. Her academic journey has taken her from California to Tennessee to Utah, where she now lives with her family and her dogs, hiking, playing, eating, dancing, and she says eating some more. Elizabeth, welcome to Undisciplined. Yeah, thanks for having me. Also joining us from Arizona State University is Sherry Towers, whose recent study in PLOS One demonstrates that most types of crimes in Chicago follow very distinct patterns. She's previously studied the contagion effect of mass shootings and has modeled the spread of diseases like Ebola and Zika. She also happens to be a particle physicist, and if that's not enough to impress you, she's a hobby archaeologist who has spent several summer vacations studying the ancestral peoples of the Four Corners region of the United States. Sherry, I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for having me, Matthew. First up today, the biomedical engineer. The Queen of England does not attend exhibitions of public lewdness. So something is out of joint. Come here, Master Kent. Let me look at you. Yes, the illusion is remarkable. And your error, Mr. Tilney, is easily forgiven. But I know something of a woman in a man's profession. Yes, by God, I do know about that. That is the voice of the always amazing Dom Judi Dench playing Queen Elizabeth I in the 1999 film Shakespeare in Love, for which she won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress, and for which writers Mark Norman and Tom Stoppard won an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. But Dench these days can't read screenplays. The 83-year-old actress suffers from age-related macular degeneration, which affects about 200 million people around the world and is thought to be responsible for about 5% of all cases of blindness. Studying this disease can be a challenge, though, because the physical challenges that occur in the retina are difficult to model outside of the body. But writing in the journal Lab on a Chip, Elizabeth Varghese described a device that can mechanically stress retinal cells. Elizabeth, before we get to the device you helped create, I'd like to know where the idea to attack this problem came from. What made macular degeneration such an important target for your research? Well, there's clearly the public aspect of it where it affects so many people, but I was really interested in it when I realized that it was an understudied cell line. The cells that are most affected during macular degeneration are the photoreceptors and these cells that line the back of our eye, and we're kind of just born with them, and they're already supposed to be working perfectly. And so when things go wrong, those cells can't really recover because they're not used to having to remodel or become used to some new situation. So I got interested in it from a science point of view, but also from just kind of a nerdy engineer point of view, like what can we do better to see what's actually going on with these cells in the back of the eye? Why do you think that they were understudied? Are they hard to study? Are they just not interesting? What was causing people not to go after them? I think they may not be interesting. So in the retina, you talk about the photoreceptors. Those are the cells we talk about, right? Your rods and your cones, they actually do the work. But there are these other cells that are actually more like the janitors. They're the ones picking up the pieces. They're the ones dealing with all the things the photoreceptors shed every night. They have pigment, so they block out any extraneous light. So all the light 
hits your photoreceptors. And potentially it's that relationship between the photoreceptors and these other cell lines, the retinal pigment epithelial cells, that are causing some of these diseases like age-related macular degeneration. And as anybody who's ever been reliant on a custodial crew knows, <laughs> you got to take care of the janitors. Absolutely. Okay, so this all starts with new blood vessels that grow beneath the retina. These, this is a process called choroidal neovascularization. Did I That's get that right. it's, sort of right? It's choroidal. 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 It's CH. What are you supposed to do? <laughs> You're supposed to say it with a ch. Exactly. <laughs> this causes stress to retinal cells, but there was a problem studying this sort of stress. Can you talk about that challenge? Yeah, so the way that most linear scientific inquiry works. Ideally, what's supposed to happen is you have these cells and you grow them in the lab and you figure out what's going on. Then you move into some sort of animal study. And then hopefully you're at the point where you understand it and you can move to a clinical trial. But if your initial cell studies, your in vitro cell studies are flawed or not the most ideal or not as representative as what's going on in an animal or a human, then all of that knowledge is based on something that's flawed. And so all my research group is trying to do is make better cell culture models, so make better in vitro studies so that we can actually move forward and everything is based on something that's a little more factual. Being able to do two or three layered models, so you have your RPE cells, those pigmented cells, the janitors, then you have some acellular membrane and some of these blood vessels coming through, that's pretty difficult to model in the lab. We have to do things to mimic that as best as possible. And so that's our motivation in all of our cell culture work. And what you wanted to mimic was the mechanical stress that was being applied to these cells as they're undergoing this process. So you and your collaborator for Hod for Hood developed two devices, one that mimics slow and continuous stress and another that mimics high levels of stress. And I've got to ask, how does one even go about building a device to stress cells? <laughs> So we have, you know, tiny disks. They're probably 10 millimeters in uh, diameter. And we grow our cells on that. Those disks have some stretch to them. So we just try to see what we can do to mimic those levels of stress. I mean, it's age-related macular degeneration. It's something that happens over a long period of time. So one of the things the RPE cells have to do is get rid of the debris that the photoreceptors slough off every night, essentially, when we go to sleep. And so some of the research shows that the RPs end up not doing that. And so that kind of slowly builds up. It's literally putting like the debris under a rug. And so that slowly builds up. So the RPs are like maybe doing some things that they're not supposed to do, but then they have to then figure out how to solve this problem where there's a little more stress on them. We had to do two versions of this that so we could slowly stretch the cells and see how they grow and then kind of blast them with a bunch of uh, mechanical stress, kind of like what would happen if a blood vessel burst through the back of the eye. And look at that from both points of view, because those are the two causes or two main indicators of age-related macular degeneration, just this drusen formation and this blood vessel formation. And was it intuitive to you guys how these little devices should be set up, or was there a lot of trial and error? There was a lot of trial and error. Um, so we looked at basically the images of their back of the eye to see what those looked like and see what the drusen or blood vessel formation looked like and how the RPEs kind of were stretched out because of them. And then we had to come back into the lab and figure out, can we mimic anything close to that? So we looked at what was available commercially and we couldn't get to the high enough rates that we wanted. So we kind of had to make our own thing. And maybe this is a spoiler alert for my own lab, but my student Farhad Farjud, he went to the DI and bought an old sewing machine for our next project because we were just kind of using the blasting method, which was great for this work. 
But then we had to get something that was kind of slow and continuous. And what looks slow and continuous? Like a sewing machine. You made this out of a sewing machine? Yeah, so the next the next paper that's going to hopefully get published, yes. Is going to be about a sewing machine? A used sewing machine that we got from... From a, from a thrift store? From a thrift store, yeah. That's amazing. Okay, yeah. so what you found in using these devices on in vitro cells is that mechanical stress does indeed cause choroidal neovascularization. That's right. right? That's right. And what is that like Like when you make that confirmation? Because that was suspected, of course. Yes. But nobody had ever confirmed it before. No. Um, I mean, it's really exciting. And what we always say is that so many cases of age-related macular degeneration cannot be treated. And so we're, we're concerned that this whole population, you know, as people are aging and getting older, that more and more people are going to have a AMD and you know, suffer from blindness. And so what we're trying to show is that even if you see tiny drusen formation or small blood vessels, you can start treating AMD right away. You don't have to wait till these later stages where, sure, the treatment will work, but you're not doing anything to cure the disease. So we're trying to show that some of these really early indicators should just be treated right away because those early indicators are actually the beginning of this downward spiral of more neovascularization, more blood vessels in infiltrating the back of the eye, causing more and more blindness. So if we can see any of this early on, that would be the ideal situation to be able to treat right away. And this isn't just important for macular degeneration because mechanical stress might be a problem in other diseases as well, including some forms of cancer and diabetes. What do these devices offer us moving forward? They're fairly straightforward to use. We did create them ourselves, but we tried to make sure that all the materials we used were more or less accessible by, mo by most researchers and scientists. And so we used a polymer that people use in labs all the time. We used trans wells, which are these ways to grow cells on things that you could just buy commercially. We used a syringe, which, you know, we can all buy syringes and poke cells at. So we try to make it so that, yes, it was unique and novel, but that it can be used if someone's research goals are to look at diabetes or some of these other cancer models where mechanical stress is an, another additional factor. And I mean, you've basically published an instruction booklet, right? So I can go out to my <laughs> local thrift store and buy a sewing machine. <laughs> I can make one of these. You can make one of those. You know, we, we often read our own papers or other people's other researchers' papers, and you know that they're missing some link. And we try to not do that. We try not to say that oh, if they only knew this one missing ingredient, it would be perfect. We try to give all the ingredients. Of course, with science, you know, there's always like the full moon or the amount of humidity in the room was just a little different. So we, you never know. But we try to make it as uh, user-friendly and, and replicatable as possible. <laughs> That's Elizabeth Varghese, whose recent study in lab on a chip gives us a new way to explore age-related macular degeneration. Elizabeth, can you stick around to chat with our next guest at the end of the show? Absolutely. Next up, the quantitative analyst. Wake up! Wake up, wake up, wake up! This is Mr. Senior Love Daddy doing the nasty to your ears, your ears to the nasty. Doing the yin and the yang, the hip and the hop, the stupid fresh thing, the flippity flop. Oh. I have today's forecast for you. Hot! And that is the unmistakable voice of Samuel L. Jackson and Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, which takes place as a heat wave ignites simmering tensions in Brooklyn, New York. 
The idea that weather, particularly hot weather, can push people to pass the limits of civility has been a theme in a lot of films, from A Streetcar Named Desire to Dog Day Afternoon. And according to a new study in PLOS One that looked at 5.7 million recorded incidents of crime in Chicago, it's, well, it's really a thing. Aggressive crime, it turns out, is strongly correlated to higher temperatures. Sherry Towers, you found other correlations, some really interesting ones, but one that really stands out to me is the correlation of hot summer days and weekends. How strong is this effect? Well, we find that uh, for aggressive crimes like uh, batteries, that we find for every, and this is actually regardless of what time of year it is, for every degree greater than average, so we look at the average temperature for each of these periods of the year, and we find that for every degree higher than that average that the temperature is, the crimes go up by a third of a percent. And so, for instance, if you have a summer day that the temperature has soared to 15 degrees higher than average, you would see a 5% increase in crime, for example, in aggressive crime. That's no small effect. That's incredible. Yes, it's not small. And actually, this has been, this has been um, basically known for quite some time. The other studies that have done it, though, didn't, uh, they kind of looked at, you know, oh, summertime, and they saw that, oh, the, there's more aggressive crime in the summertime. And the problem with just looking at the time of year is that you don't know whether it's because there's just more daylight hours and people are outside perhaps more in daylight hours and encountering each other more and getting into you know, aggressive situations, or whether it is in fact actually the temperature that's causing, causing the issue. And so what we did in our study is we tried to decouple those two effects. And you didn't just look at weather, you looked at holidays, you looked at school vacations, you looked at the specific days of the week, and the, even paydays, you looked at paydays. What else jumped out at you when you were looking at all these other factors? <laughs> well, that was one of the things that was unique about our study is that we tried to take into account all these things at once, because unfortunately, there can be what we call confounders. If you don't try to take into account all these factors at once, and you just look at one or two of them, you don't know whether or not the patterns that you see are actually due to some other variable that you haven't taken into account in your analysis. And so like you say, we took into account things like day of week, uh, day of month. So for instance, uh, paydays, of course, in, for many people would get paid either on the first day of the month, the last day of the month, or, and or on the 15th of the month, usually. Not everybody, but many people. And then we also looked at holidays, which can actually play a significant factor in patterns of crime. And so we found that uh, not all holidays uh, were significantly associated with crime, but some were. Halloween tends to be associated with all kinds of things. Um, for instance, criminal, criminal damage is a big one on Halloween. Holidays that involve alcohol tend to be involved with higher um, various types of crime, um, especially aggressive crime. So that would be things like July 4th or Memorial Day, New Year's, New Year's Eve celebrations. And, of course, day of week, what we find is that things like aggressive crimes go up significantly on uh, basically Friday nights and Saturday nights is what we find. And, again, that, that alcohol may be playing a role. And while I'm no criminologist, I have the Sherry Towers' drunken, stupid theory of crime that says that the more people are drinking, the more likely they're going to get into aggressive situations. Is there going to be a paper on the Sherry Towers' drunken theory of aggression and crime? <laughs> 
Well, like I say, I'm not a, I'm not a criminologist, and so I think the criminologists would perhaps not perhaps not uh, be so keen on that theory. They do, criminologists do have a theory called the routine activity theory is one of their theories of crime. Yeah, but that's and so much more boring a name. <laughs> it is a boring name, but it does actually uh, describe some of the things that we see in these data that we find that, for instance, there is this pattern on Friday and Saturday nights, and you can see it actually. So we don't really talk about it in the paper, but... Uh, when we look at um, hourly data, you can see actually when the bars close on Friday and Saturday nights because aggressive crime really tends to go up right around then. And so it really is this routine activity where people are doing things that put them in situations where either they're more likely to commit a crime or more likely to be victim of a crime. And we definitely see those patterns. So there was also this effect around Christmas and Thanksgiving. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so we found that on holidays like Christmas, Thanksgiving, and Easter, so holidays where families typically get together, not all crimes, but uh, many crimes actually go down significantly. And again, this feeds into that routine activity theory where even criminals take holidays, even criminals spend time with their families. And so we really do see, especially Christmas Eve, uh, Thanksgiving, uh, crimes do go down. And I imagine that there are thousands of factors you could additionally study to see if there was an impact on crime. How did you decide on the factors that were the focus for this study? Did you just take some guesses or were they based on other research that had been done? So many of them were based on, so certainly the the temperature and uh, some other climate variables uh, have been looked at before. So that was an obvious one to look at. Uh, Things like uh, holidays, I think ours is probably the most comprehensive look at holidays that's been done uh, to date. And uh, things like weekdays, weekday patterns, I believe, have been known for a while. But like I say, ours was the first to kind of bring this together. But the motivation for our study, actually, the, the, my colleagues um, at Purdue University who collaborated on this paper, they and, and I actually helped with this, uh, have developed a predictive analytics package for law enforcement. And it's actually it's called Valet. And it's actually used by various state and local police agencies uh, nationwide. And what we wanted to do was, so right now what Valet does is it kind of looks at geospatial and kind of broad temporal trends in crime and tries to help the police agencies direct their efforts better to try to, you know, predict where crime's going to happen so they can direct their efforts to that, to those areas and then help to reduce, hopefully reduce crime. And one of the things is we were always, we're always aiming to try to make it better, make that package better. And so one of the things we wanted to look at was whether or not, uh, for instance, weather forecasts might be something that would be uh, a good thing to add into the model to try to, to try to hone its predictive capability better. So if I'm a police sergeant and I'm scheduling my officers, Fridays are important, but not all Fridays are created equal. So I might want to keep my eye on the weather report and other factors about where the calendar falls in terms of holidays and other things. That's all the things that this tool helps people do? Yes. Yeah. And it's that way, look, we didn't, we didn't talk about it in this particular analysis. This particular analysis was just looking at temporal trends. But in Valet, we also have geospatial analytics that help uh, the police, uh, once they've actually scheduled their officers and they know who's going to be going out, to kind of pinpoint where they should be focusing their efforts. And you've also noted that it isn't just important for the number of cops that are in a certain area at a certain time, but also the type of police officer who's there. Can you explain that a little bit? Well, when you... 
not all crimes have the same patterns. And so different types of crime have very distinctive patterns. So, for instance, aggressive crimes certainly go up on, you know, Fridays and Saturdays, for example. But things like burglaries tend to go down on weekends. And again, it's that routine activity theory where people are basically at home, and so there's very very little opportunity for burglars to actually burgle a house while people are home on weekends. So what we find is that these various types of crimes, it depends on what type of crime it is, that we have these different patterns. And certainly when we look at the geospatial patterns of crime, different types of crime have different hotspots. Are police officials on top of this sort of analysis and scheduling, or is it hard to change old habits of policing? Certainly these these predictive analytics uh, packages for crime, and ours isn't the only one that's available, are becoming increasingly popular in police agencies. We live in a we live in a world of increasingly in a world of data that's driven by data, decisions driven by data. And so these kind of packages actually are police agencies across the country and intelligence agencies are finding them increasingly useful. That's Sherry Towers, whose recent study in PLOS One suggests that if you're trying to figure out how to deploy limited police resources, the National Weather Service might be able to help. Sherry, can I introduce you to someone who is equally cool as you? (laughs) Absolutely. Well, great. Sherry, then this is biomedical engineer Elizabeth Varghese. And Elizabeth, this is quantitative analyst Sherry Towers. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, Sherry. Nice to meet you. So the point of this show, of course, is to bring together people from different disciplines. And this is sort of a meta experience here because you both already work across a number of disciplines. Elizabeth, your work is all about identifying mechanical solutions for biological problems. And Sherry, a lot of your academic background is in physics, but you've really made a tremendous impact in quantitative analysts of public health issues. So I'm wondering what makes interdisciplinary work so interesting to the both of you? Most of what I do these days is actually things that involve quantitative and predictive analytics, but I use a variety of tools to do that. So uh, in this particular study, it was a statistical study, but I also do mathematical and computational modeling. My colleagues and I have moved into modeling of social behaviors as a contagious process. And so one of the things I really love about the field that I'm in now is that it is truly interdisciplinary, intensely interdisciplinary, and I just love it that way because I have a toolbox of skills that allows me to apply those skills to many different research questions in a lot of different fields. Yeah, I can agree with that my papers are with medical doctors or other engineers or biologists or chemists. And I just, I love it. And it keeps things interesting. And like, I have this set of skills. And if the right person wants to work with me, because they have this biological problem that they want to solve, but they can't with the tools they have, we can easily collaborate and come up with new solutions using both of our expertise. That's what I love, actually, is collaborating with people from different fields, because certainly, you know, when I'm working on something that involves crime, it's always nice to, for instance, collaborate with people in criminology, or if I'm working on something that involves disease, to work with people who are experts in either epidemiology or public health. The opportunity to collaborate with people from all these different fields is something that makes for a very enjoyable work experience, in my opinion. You have this many tools can it be a little frustrating, like when you're meeting somebody for the first time, like you guys are right now? Do your, does your mind just start like firing off all of these ideas of like collaborative opportunities? And what do you do with that when there's more interesting things to do than there is time to do it? This is just the beginning of my fifth year here. And that is pretty much how I 
went to every single meeting ever for the last for my first three or four years probably was just like just so much information and so many ideas that I would you know talk too quickly and kind of overwhelm the person because normally who I was talking to had their own research goals and their own research program and I was just kind of trying to fit into that and so I would kind of overwhelm them with information and now I've I've taken a step back and really tried to cultivate the collaborations that have resulted in at least some preliminary data and try to work off of that instead of just overwhelm them with like, here are all the things we should do and really quickly and we should do it all together and I love you and please let me work with you forever, you know. Just try to take a step back and say, I would like to receive some of the data that you have on the stress levels of that one cell line that you were looking at. And then we can work from there. And I try to speak slowly and calmly with deep breaths. Yeah, and I too have this huge long list of analyses that I'd like to get to. I really do not have enough opinions in my life. I need more. But one of the things that was really helpful to me was when I was doing my graduate degree in statistics that we had to take a semester of consulting. And actually, that was remarkably helpful because uh, basically what the university did is they had a consulting consulting section that was run by faculty, and anybody from the university could come and get help with their analysis. And so what would happen is that you were confronted as a student with this broad array of analyses just from all kinds of different fields. And so what you learned to do was to listen to the client, because oftentimes people had this data and they were almost overwhelmed by the data. And they kind of had a research question that they wanted answered with the data, but they weren't sure how to go about doing that. And so what we had to do was learn how to listen to the client and basically learn what their data was, figure out what their research question was, and then help guide them towards the statistical solution, towards, you know, answering that research question. And I currently have a consulting company, and so I do this I do this to this day, where it's been extraordinarily helpful in my research life, too, because I do work uh, in an intensely collaborative, interdisciplinary environment. It really has been helpful to have that experience in listening to people from other fields. And so I found that to be really helpful, actually, and I'm really happy that that university actually had graduate students do that. So you guys both came into this discussion with these huge, amazing toolboxes. When you were listening to each other think, did you start firing off ideas about ways that you want to uh, better explore or just maybe questions that you have about each other's research? Yeah, I I had a question for you, Sherry. Um, When you were talking about all these different variables that might affect higher crime rates, I was, you know, thinking about all the variables that might affect our cell culture systems. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we base it on what other people have done. But I was just wondering, from your own point of view, how do you approach a study without just a ton of bias? You know, when we look at specific genetic markers or protein expression, I'm concerned that are we just totally biased and there's something that we're missing because we're only focused on this one thing that other people have seen. So I was just wondering how you navigated that. It is true that oftentimes you're biased by what other people have done, like what to look at. I try to, uh, especially from my experience as a physicist, we're kind of trained to think outside the box. You're always looking for those confounders. You're like relentlessly looking for the confounders. And so that comes from my training that I'm always trying to think of what other things can be confounding my analysis. But you're right that even if you're trying to do that, that there can be bias that comes from the other studies. And there's also other types of bias. And this is something that I certainly try to instill in my students, the kind of bias that you really need to avoid. And that's the bias that if you don't get the answer you want, you don't publish it. Say we went through this entire analysis and we found that there was no dependence on weekday, no dependence on temperature, no dependence on anything. 
we call that the boring result. And actually, in this case, it wouldn't be a boring result because that would contradict the whole body of literature that came before it. But let's assume we were the first to do this study. It would actually be difficult. Unfortunately, in academia, it would be difficult to get that published just because it's the so-called boring result. Whereas, you know, something where you see that there's a pattern, that is more likely to be uh, accepted for review by a journal just because it's more interesting. But even beyond that, it, there may be a tendency of researchers if a certain analysis doesn't give them the answer that they were expecting, that perhaps they might be less likely to publish it. So there's all kinds of biases that can be introduced in the kinds of analyses we do in academia. And it's our job as researchers to do our best to avoid these kind of biases. Yeah, thank you. I don't know if you meant that to be a pep talk, but seriously, we are. I'm dealing with that with the student right now because it, our genetic profile isn't isn't what we thought it would be, and we're going back and forth with well, these two genes are not expressing at levels we thought. Should we publish that? And it's of course we should, right? But then that doesn't fit our story. So then what do we do? Because <laughs> we have to get published, right? You know, so thank you for that pep talk, because I think we need to put it in. And even if we don't know the answer, it's so, still some, it's the truth that we found in our study. And I think that's just as valuable as whether or not it fits within the whole story that we're, we're trying to tell. I didn't really mean it as a, as a pep talk for you, but it's certainly <laughs> it worked that way. <laughs> that with, with, with young students, like uh, students that are just entering our program, for instance, that they have a tendency to cast their research question as, we're going to show that blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, you don't, you don't cast it that way. You say that we're going to examine this to determine you know, what effects might be important. You never phrase a research question, and many of them will tend to do that, like you're looking to find something. Should never, they should never be phrasing it that way. And it's, I think it's a natural tendency that we have as humans because, r- really, we are curious about something. And usually when we're curious about something, we kind of have usually have a preconceived idea of, you know, what the result is going to be, unfortunately. And so it's, just, it's kind, of the, kind of trying to direct them away from that human tendency and more towards, you know, just try to, try to direct them to be more thinking like a true scientist. Unfortunately, we are just about out of time. Elizabeth Varghese, thank you so much for joining us on Undiscipline today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And Sherry Towers, thank you. Thank you. If you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at SoUndisciplined. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>